Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Today, we're going to tackle the challenging topic of suicide and mental health. Support programs like Talk Suicide exist as well as workplace wellness programs, some of which can be found in some of the most isolated workplaces in the world, like the offshore of Newfoundland and Labrador. So why are these supports so important? Well, for a bit of context, in Canada, 11 people die of suicide each day, and the rate in Newfoundland and Labrador is even higher than the rest of the country. A third of all deaths by suicide in Canada are in people between the ages of 35 and 45, and suicide is the second leading cause of death in youth and young adults between the ages of 15 and 34. Now, the slogan of this year's World Suicide Prevention Day is creating hope through action. By listening to survivors and those affected by suicide and sharing resources and advocating for systemic changes in suicide prevention, they believe they can create a future where every person experiencing suicidal thoughts feels supported and finds hope. Now, there's lots of different manifestations of mental health conditions, suicide, of course, being the most deadly, but feelings of isolation are a common theme. That's why workplaces are adopting peer support programs and training people in the workplace to help when mental health emergencies and challenges emerge. And each year, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health recognizes seven Canadians whose work has helped to advance the mental health agenda across the country. And today, we're going to chat with one of those recipients, Newfoundland and Labrador's own Steve Tizard, who also happens to be a longtime friend from my days in the offshore. But first, we're joined by Chief Medical Officer Dr. Allison Crawford of Talk Suicide, who's going to help us better understand suicide and the resources available to support those who need help. We're also going to chat with Wyatt Higdu, a mental health hotline volunteer. Let's get to my conversation with Dr. Allison Crawford. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on and talking. You're the chief medical officer of Talk Suicide Canada. So you're the right person to give us the correct information about a really sensitive subject. Can you tell me about your role with that organization and maybe a little bit about Talk Suicide Canada? Absolutely. So I'm a psychiatrist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, which is a, a large uh, mental health uh, hospital. And uh, so Talk Suicide Canada is funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada, but it's uh, run by partners, CAMH and founding partners, Crisis Services Canada and the Canadian Mental Health Association. So another way of saying that is there are a lot of people behind this endeavour. Uh, Talk Suicide Canada is a national um, crisis line for people who are experiencing suicide-related distress, and it's it operates 24 hours a day, every day in English and French uh, from coast to coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've yeah. had some folks from CAMH on before, a great organization doing lots of great things in the community as well, and, and so are you. And I think that some people don't realize how big of an issue suicide is. Do you have any statistics across Canada for how suicide impacts us? Yes, I mean, suicide, the way I think about it is it's a tragic outcome uh, of a lot of different, it's a, it's a complex phenomena. Sometimes we don't know when people are struggling with, with suicidal thinking, um, but it, it's a very tragic outcome of, of that kind of thinking. Uh, about 4,000 people per year in Canada die uh, by suicide, and which is about 11 people per day. So it's a very significant uh, problem. Mm. So can um, I- can I throw your, your psychiatrist hat on for a second and just, you know, suicide to a lot of people that may not be struggling with severe mental illness or, or some of the predisposing conditions. Can you define what suicide really means from a psychological perspective? Why somebody would turn towards that as a solution? 
Yes. Well, I, I don't know that I can give a, a, an easy definition because I think it's something that we're still learning about all the time, even though it's it's something that's always existed socially. So I, I tend to think about, you know, different risk factors. But I think to me, the most compelling explanation is, is an interpersonal understanding of what happens to somebody who's contemplating ending their life. Um, and this comes from Thomas Joyner's work and other people, but the the feeling that one doesn't belong, mm. um, that they are disconnected socially uh, and they don't have supports, but they also feel like a burden. So they they that that combination of feeling like a burden and that you don't belong and that you are out of options. You know, we often hear um, pe- people who have thought about suicide describe that struggle of feeling like they're, they're boxed in. They have nowhere else to go. Nothing, nothing that they can see would change their situation. And so that combination, um, I think, w- so we can think about a lot of things that put people at risk of being in that situation. Mm-hmm. But it's really, to me, that's been the best explanation that that I've heard. And then I think social things play a huge role, you know, the more, so we know, for example, the more youth are exposed to suicide, the more they hear about it or learn about it in a particular way. If they are in that kind of situation that I just described, people, people think about that as a, as an option. Mm-hmm. So there are many, many layers. Um, and then of course there are some biological risks that have been identified. People who struggle with depression or substance use are more at risk. But I, I still think it comes back to that way of being held or not held, feeling feeling apart from society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and, you know, those risk factors are important and they make perfect sense to, you know, me listening to this and saying, yes, yeah, somebody who feels isolated and a burden would think that maybe that is an, an exit, obviously not the appropriate one. Um, but when I look mm-hmm. at somebody other risk factors, you mentioned young people, and I feel like young people are under more stress these days. I've heard different things about social media causing higher rates of depression. Is that the case when we're seeing things for for, uh, young people when it comes to rates of suicide? This is definitely an area that is evolving, and and I think an area of of concern that, well, and especially after and and, during um, the, the COVID pandemic, I think there are so many stresses for young people. Um, and we are, you know, we, we saw over the last uh, two and a half years, a tripling of calls to Talk Suicide Canada. So we know that there is more stress and distress. And I think we used to, you know, when I went to medical school, which is a number of years ago now, um, we used to talk about men who were older, who had a chronic illness and who weren't married as being, and had some substance use as being, like the the big cluster of risks for suicide, you can see how that fits into the explanation that I gave, isolated, feeling burdensome, et cetera. But now we know that there are other groups of people. And I think understanding that same experience of being socially disconnected and feeling like a burden for young people is so important. Um, Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst young people. So, so it's very important to understand that. And in, in some groups and communities, boys are at particular uh, risk. Really? Yeah. And I, I mean, you talk about isolation the last two years has been extremely tough. I think about, you know, those formative years being a teenager and being in high school and proms and all these things that a lot of kids missed mm-hmm. out on, or even in university, trying to do all your yeah. classes online. I could see how that could be really isolating for people. I feel like 
people still, there's a stigma around speaking about suicide. It's one of those topics that people are afraid to talk about, but it's extremely important. Why are people hesitant to speak about it? And why is the use of appropriate language so important? And maybe you could give us some advice on how we can speak about it. Well, I'm really glad you asked about that. Um, so Talk Suicide Canada, we actually rebranded recently from the Canada Suicide Prevention Service. Mm -hmm very long, but also as, as a way to say, this is something we should be talking about. And our, our logo has a yellow circle, which, um, and a blue background and hope I think is, is very important. We've talked a lot about risk factors, but that talking about suicide does not necessarily make it happen. In fact, if it can decrease some of the stigma, if it can get people feeling like there's a possibility of connection, then, then we, we're very hopeful that that can intervene and uh, save someone's life. So I think it's, it's incredibly important to talk uh, about suicide in a non-stigmatizing way. Yeah, and I guess that's also being cognizant of people that may be at risk. And so I don't think you could necessarily predict it, but are there certain signs that somebody is listening and they may have somebody in their life that is struggling is there things that people can look for as maybe potential warning signs for this? Yeah, the, the first thing I would say is that if people are struggling for themselves to know they're, they're deserving of help. Mm. And at the same time, for all of us to know, as, as you said, but just to underscore it, we can't necessarily predict who will die by suicide because sometimes there's a lot of burden left for people if they feel like they should have seen or they should have known. Mm -hmm. So what I prioritize is what we were just talking about, which is asking, mm -hmm. are you doing okay? Are you thinking about suicide? Asking someone that will not make them more likely to end their lives by suicide. And I think sometimes people don't know they want to take care. They don't want to hurt people. They, so they don't ask, mm -hmm. but so yes, we should. And I will talk, I will get to your question and talk about some warning signs that we know yeah. of for some people, but more importantly is, just put the conversation on the table. Are you doing okay? And if you have any doubt, ask someone. But okay, what else can you look for? I think signs of depression are probably the most key. Um, you know, if you notice someone's mood is low, if you notice they're not enjoying things, they're not sleeping well, if they're talking about death, um, those things would make, would definitely prompt me to say, are you doing okay? What I've noticed, I'm worried about you anything I can do. Um, we have uh, on our website, uh, which is uh, www.talksuicide.ca or www.parlonsuicide.ca. We have actually quite a few resources on how to talk about suicide if you're struggling and then how to open that conversation right. with somebody if, you, if you're worried about them. Yeah. And I guess that would be the first line of defense is the people that are closest to them not being afraid to broach it, broaching it appropriately based on the language and, and the resources you have available. Um, but if we really identify somebody needing help, what should what should we do as as people that are looking out for these folks? Or if somebody is aware that they're having these these thoughts, um, how should we get help? Yeah, excellent question. I mean, that is why our service exists. We we also uh, just found out from the, the Canadian federal government that we Canada will be getting a three digit number 988. Um, so uh, CAMH is leading the implementation of that work. So it will get even easier to call. But but certainly if if you are worried, um, 
for yourself or someone else, you can always call us. And right now that, that service exists, even though it's not a three digit number yet. And that's uh, 1-833-456-4566. We're here with Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Allison Crawford of Talk Suicide, who's helping us better understand suicide and the resources available to support those who need help. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Allison Crawford of Talk Suicide to help us better understand suicide and the resources available to support those who need help. Let's check it out. Now, you know, that's that's for people that may be struggling, but we're also a wellness show here, so we always focus on yes. other things as well. So let's talk yeah. about what are some of the things that are protective for people. So what can people do to, you know, build resilience and uh, and and be healthy mentally to potentially circumvent anything like this ever happening? Yes, uh, I I agree. It's it's so easy to talk uh, about the risks and important to do so, but how can we sort of protect ourselves and each other? Because the other thing that I Although we deal, we tend to deal with individuals, it's individuals who call us or families. This is a very social thing, you know, that that people don't get distressed just in their own minds and bodies. It's really about their connection with other people. So I think the more connected we are socially and finding ways to do that. Um, the better off we all are. So, and that means different things for different people, mm -hmm. joining activities, volunteering, um, getting out. We, it shows even introverts, the research shows that that uh, connecting with other people really can lift your mood mm -hmm. uh, and talking to other people. To me, that's building resilient communities is mm -hmm. and families is the best thing that we can do. I think also advocacy for, um, you asked about different groups at risk, and I, I hadn't even talked um, about people who've experienced adversity as children mm -hmm. uh, throughout childhood. So this is not something that starts you know, at the point at which people um, think about ending their life. It's something that is really, we have to take a, a social approach and we have to think across all the different phases of life. So anything that we can do to get children more connected, focusing on early development, focusing on supporting families, that those are very positive things that have lifelong uh, impacts. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, whatever we can also do individually to... Uh, manage our 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 emotions really you know and there are there's there's lots of evidence around that sounds like you talk about those things on your show yeah. so sleep is incredibly important um at at as being sort of a base to do that from yep. um and um and things psychological flexibility that helps us deal with with challenging things yeah i love the, the term emotional agility it's funny uh, when you talked about you know isolation and, and getting out there. We had Dr. Jacqueline Olds and Dr. Richard Schwartz from Harvard on who wrote the book, The Lonely American. And uh, they said that, you know, after the pandemic, people have turned their lighthouse and Newfoundland lighthouse is obviously a very relevant metaphor mm -hmm. um, off because we've been told not to send a signal out to, to be connected. And now we may have to turn it on and force ourselves to get back out there. And, you know, maybe for somebody who is the introverted side and, and it really needs connection, um, any quick advice you'd give people on how they can best sort of like integrate themselves back in? Oh my goodness. I have like, I relate. That's the other thing. These things affect us all. I, I just saw a colleague at work and somebody on our team who's very bubbly and outgoing and extroverted, but was the first time we were sort of seeing each other face to face and we kind of stood awkwardly in the hallway and then both acknowledged, 
this is really awkward. <laughs> um, yeah, we're all out of practice. So I, I think just getting back in there, mm-hmm. I, I really, um, and, and, you know, talking to somebody that you do trust to get a little bit of coaching, acknowledging to yourself, you're going to find that if you, if you put yourself out there and say, I'm rusty at this, I'm finding it hard. Yeah. I know it's important you know, do it with a friend. It's always good to go and get socially connected. If you can go with someone that, that can be helpful. Yeah. Um, but just acknowledging, like we need to be compassionate to ourselves. It is tough and it's it tough for everybody. It is. And in particular for those people that are struggling. So you mentioned some sources that have resources available. Um, can we run through those again? So if somebody's listening, they're interested in seeing what they can do, um, where they can go find those. Yes. Uh, so our website, talksuicide.ca, has links to lots of things, but especially to our service. And it's also available in French, and that's uh, parlonsuicide.ca. Our phone line is 1-833-456-4566. And from 4 p.m. until midnight, that's Eastern time. So depending on uh, time zone, uh, you can also chat. Uh, you can also text to 45645. Now, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for any last thoughts from you. We have, you're a psychiatrist. You're an expert in this area. Anything you want to leave our listeners with? Just that um, if you are listening to this and it's happened to catch you at a low moment, to know that you deserve help, that there. Um, there is help, and we, we also talk to lots of people who've gone through this, who have experienced suicide-related thoughts um, at different points in their life, and with support that, that it's possible to, um, to live a full life. And, and we need everyone. We, we need you to, to stay and to reach out. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate taking the time to join us today. Thanks so much, Mike. Now, thank you to Dr. Crawford for joining us. Next up, we have Wyatt Higdu, who besides being one of my students at Memorial is also a volunteer for the Mental Health Hotline. He'll be sharing the training they go through and why he chose to give back by helping others. Let's check it out. Hi, Wyatt, welcome to the show. It's good to see you, uh, not just in class, you're one of my students, but you're also somebody who is engaged with the Talk Suicide program. Tell me a bit about yourself and uh, about what you're doing in school. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to Mon right now and I'm majoring in biology. Mm-hmm. I'm doing an honors degree with Dr. Stavely, actually, and I'm working with transgenic flies. And so I, uh, I'm on my final year now and i'm hoping after this to eventually head to med school excellent excellent well that's good you've got a really keen interest in health and that's where we met was in the physiology course for the for the medical school uh sort of the pre-med course but you know you reached out to me because you've gotten involved since then with the talk suicide program tell me a bit about why you decided to get involved with that program in particular Yeah, so I think what really drew me to talk suicide in particular, I was looking to volunteer in a location where I could see having a direct, meaningful impact on the people who I want to help. Mm -hmm. And so with talk suicide and similar services, I'm able to talk to these people one-on-one directly, give them this warm space to be able to communicate and you know, just talk to people who's probably been feeling the lowest they've ever felt in their life and Mm. to be able to give them that space to start to feel safer with themselves again is not only really 
rewarding to myself, but also to the service users calling in. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, I think we've all had uh, some sort of personal experience with people that may be struggling. Uh, maybe we don't get a firsthand experience of just how challenging it is, but that's something that you've been able to sort of take under your belt and, and go through quite extensive training, actually. Can you tell me about what you had to do in order to become qualified to handle these sort of like, a, I guess I would say life or death calls for people sometimes? Yeah, definitely. And the training consisted of just uh, several weeks of online uh, modules, whereby each week we'd be given uh, so much information on various topics, such as just basic call handling, active listening, emotional validation, and as well, just background information on mental illness and suicide. And then at the end of our weekly modules, we'd myself and fellow volunteer trainees would meet in a virtual setting to discuss the week's material. And so that was phase one. And then with phase two, we transferred to the actual calls itself Mm -hmm. and we were paired with a mentor. So the mentor would act like a supervisor. They'd listen to us, take the calls on our own and give us feedback on how to better handle both the caller and, and the service user. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I know that you obviously went through extensive training and you've been vetted and screened to make sure that you are a professional at what you do because it's such an important thing. But for people that are listening, can you tell us a bit about the approach that you guys are trained to take when you receive a call? Yeah. So the general approach is really just to start off with an open-ended uh, statement. So when the service user calls in, I and myself and other volunteers would start off by just asking a little bit about why they're calling in today, introduce ourselves, give them the space to direct the conversation in whatever way they're comfortable. And we'll get them talking. We'll make sure that they feel heard and listened to, regardless of the topic and regardless of what it is that's got them so distressed. And from there, we'd also mix in a little bit of a suicide safety assessment. And that's where we kind of want to check and see if they have a plan, if they have the means, if they've had similar sort of dealings with suicide before in the past, to kind of get an idea for just how safe or unsafe the service user is at this particular moment. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so you're really trying to get a lot of information to see if you should possibly escalate it. Is that one of the reasons why you sort of look for this information? Yeah. So if we are unable to, or we're not confident in the service user's ability to stay safe, uh, we need to be able to know what it is exactly they have planned, how far along on this sort of uh, journey they've been on before they reached out for help because if we can't accurately basically bring them down into a more level headspace we need to be ready for possible 911 calls and and safety checks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing do people call sometimes looking to just get reassurance to get that sort of advice or are sometimes they reaching out as like a, a last ditch effort to get that help and support for they potentially make a decision which could impact everything in their life. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, when people are talking about different services like this, you know, maybe you can give me an idea of just how important is talk suicide for the people that are calling a line like this? 
Yes. So I think that services like tax suicide are incredibly important, especially because, as we all know, the oftentimes mental health services is not only expensive, but really hard to get access to. There's like long wait lists and they're hard to find. And a lot of callers calling into the lines are really just looking for a place to find a counselor because they just don't know where to turn. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have something like tax suicide widely available throughout Canada, just at your fingertips, and to have this warm space of caring people to kind of look after these people and provide them with the help that they need is really valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and so if somebody's listening and they're struggling right now and they've been contemplating calling the line, what would you tell them? Uh, I would definitely tell them to not hesitate reaching out that there's a lot of very caring and empathetic people volunteering on these lines, just waiting for you to call to be able to better help you and to help you get different services that you may need to help to feel better and safer with yourself again. Mm -hmm. And for you, this is something that you're passionate about. You want to be in the healthcare field. You want to help people that are at their most vulnerable case. What would you tell people that are thinking about volunteering like you have? What, what, what can they get out of helping out like you have? I think that while it is a very difficult uh, volunteering position to undertake, I think it's also one of the most rewarding. I think that it really helps develop your communication skills and to kind of give you that sort of bedside manner to helping people so emotionally distressed that could really be applied in any situation that you find yourself in in day to day. And I think that to be able to take that training, help these people and to see them, you know, thank you and see them, well, hear the relief in their voice as they just start that track on being safer and healthy again. I think it's one of the most rewarding experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, I think that Talk Suicide's really uh, fortunate to have you and the other volunteers to help. Um, I think what you're doing is a fantastic thing. And I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing that with us today. Of course, you're very welcome. That's Wyatt Higdu, a volunteer who helps those in need when they need it most. Now, when we come back, we'll chat with mental health advocate and trailblazer Steve Tizard. Be sure to stick around. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Each year, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health recognizes seven Canadians whose work has helped to advance the mental health agenda across the country. And today, we're going to chat with one of those recipients, Newfoundland and Labrador's own Steve Tizard. Now, Steve is a longtime friend from my days working in the offshore, and he joined me from Toronto to share his story. Let's check it out. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Hey, how are you, Mike? Really good, really good. I'm glad you could join the show. We we go way back, me and you. You know, uh, it's been a, it's been a long time. We've known each other since the offshore days. Yeah, for sure. Many many years offshore. I think I I may have had a full head of hair at that point in time, Mike. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I probably still look like I was ten years old. It's all uh, good. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about your past. I mean, you've got a sort of an interesting background of how you became an advocate and a real uh, leader in mental health in this province. Yeah, it wasn't something that I, you know, I I was planning when I was much younger and I was finishing business school and I was getting into the industry. It was just it was something uh, that was needed so badly in the in the industry. And it was virtually non-existent, you know, in the late 90s when I started. 
and and right up on through you know the stigma was so high about mental health we just it just everybody was so busy we just never stopped to talk about mental health and yeah. uh and when we started to in uh you know uh 2012 2013 and we knew we had to, to, to start a program uh yeah things really started to take shape quite uh quite quickly Mm -hmm. And before we get into the specific event that kind of triggered all of this, I mean, let's just explain a little bit about the offshore to the folks that haven't experienced it. I obviously haven't spent as much time as you, but I spent a couple of years of my life out there, like like over 400 and some days. And it's a very unique environment and one that really should foster mental health because it's just such a challenging workplace. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I'm over 25 years now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I've, I've certainly seen it evolve, but the offshore is just such a unique place. I mean, it's like many, many other workplaces, but you have such isolation that's there. Um, it's a very tight family environment because we spend more time together with our workers offshore and our friends offshore than we even do with our family members. So, um, you know, we get, we get through things together. Uh, you know, we're there together for Christmases and birthdays and graduations. And, and unfortunately we're there for some of the bad times as well, when, you know, we've had loss or, um, there's a difficult situation onshore and we can't just go home all the time. It's, uh, you know, that's the part of the isolation. So it is a different workplace. It's a very dangerous workplace, mm -hmm. but the safety programs, have always been, you know, second to none. It's just that this is where we wanted to get mental health and physical health and mental safety and physical safety uh, on the same on the same page. And, and that's what's taken, you know, the time to do that. Totally. And that's how we really kind of got connected is that uh, I was doing a lot of the wellness and then you were obviously being a huge leader in, in driving the mental health side of things. Tell us a bit about what really inspired going forward. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, we, we had a, we had a workplace accident, unfortunately, and uh, it was a, a significant one that many, many people, you know, in the province and in Canada worldwide really know about. And that was the Cougar 491 tragedy in March of 2009. And, you know, we, uh, we tried to deal with it, I guess, the best that we could. Um, we, we were very safety oriented at the time. So we wanted to know more about, you know, the accident and, and what was happening. And there was an inquiry that was ongoing as well. Mm -hmm. But really the background of that is we, we weren't dealing with the psychological issues that were coming forward. We had coworkers who had great difficulty returning to work mm -hmm. after that, including myself. And, and the, really that's where it started because I identified uh, very early that, I was suffering from mental health issues. My anxiety was very, very high. Uh, I was suffering from acute stress. And, and I finally went and, and was able to get counseling on shore, which, which helped me a great deal. And, and I knew that there were so many people suffering in silence back at the workplace. So when I went back, I shared my experience. I shared my lived experience with so many. And the hands just started going up and people said, yes, we're going through the same thing. We need assistance. And really, that's where the program started. We were like the aha moment. Wow. Like, OK, we've got something here. We need something. Then we just had to shape it and and put it together, put the program together. Yeah. Yeah. It takes that brave person to put their hand up and say, look, this is me. This is what I've been going through. And, you know, uh, to your credit, you being that person has allowed you to be able to really advocate for it. And, uh, you know, your programs have gone extensively across it. I've done the program. All of the people that work with me did the program. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do and what the program looks like for people and really what the fundamentals of, uh, of it are. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a workplace wellness program or an advocacy program. 
And it's not just one piece of training or, or one course or education that we do. It's more of a holistic program where, uh, you know, we take uh, workers talking to workers and reaching out to each other. So we have a workplace wellness program where we, we try to get together and get to know each other better. And if, we, if you know each other better, the conversations are easier to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we install a, a wellness board with wellness information and tips that are, are throughout the, the platform, the workplace. And then, yes, we come on top of that with the mental health first aid program, the two-day program from the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And like that's just been so overwhelming to do that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2015, we, we decided we were going to start inviting our significant others and spouses to come do the programs with us. And even though mental health first aid is not a couples counseling course, it really hits home with um, couples talking about what the stressors and anxieties each of them feel when one is at work and when one is at home and there's a great connection that's there. And I think that's something that we've missed for such a long time in the industry where you have a connect with some relationships. So we focus primarily on that. So this is where it becomes, you know, a, a full program where you have wellness activities, you have mental health first aid, uh, you have activities, you know, in the workplace. We also do uh, uh, mental health moments or micro learning in our occupational health and safety meetings. So it's just a quick hit on, on mental health issues in our, in our OHS meetings, five, six minute conversations just to get things started and get the dialogue going in the workplace. Right. And that's all it takes sometimes. You know, it's such an important thing. Um, when I think about uh, the mental health first aid, I thought it was really interesting. I interviewed Amelia Curran recently, who also is an advocate for mental health first aid. And um, and she she basically said, we all love CPR. You know, why wouldn't we do the right. same thing for this? And, you know, effective communication is something that's just not really taught. But I think when I think about the isolation of, of the remote workplaces that you work uh, in, in heavy industry and safety sensitive environments, I also think there's some parallels to the pandemic that occurred because I think some people who've been highly connected their entire lives and were never put into these isolated environments felt isolated for the first time. Have you seen that sort of awareness around this type of mental health and, and advocacy that you do and training uh, expanding now because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think whatever we thought program was and whatever we thought mental health was in 2019 or early 2020, everything has changed so dramatically pandemic. Uh, yeah, people have experienced the isolation, um, much like we have experienced the, the isolation. But I think a lot of workplaces went from awareness and education to crisis management, to making sure people were going to be okay. Uh, financially, how are they going to be? Physical health, how are they going to be? And then, of course, the mental health part played into that. When we look at where we are now, I think we're getting back to the awareness and education, but also we're dealing with things that we haven't seen before. Mm. Now you have people returning to the workplace who bring a level of anxiety perhaps with them, or we're seeing uh, coworkers and friends being affected because their family, their children, significant others are dealing with mental health issues now that they've probably never had And they are looking for resources, education, and information for them. So I think, yeah, we're getting back online. Things are starting to flow again. Mm -hmm. We have more to deal with right now. And and I think that's where things are getting stretched a little more. Mm -hmm. That's where mental health advocates in the workplace, mental health first aiders, can take up some of that slack and really start some good conversations in the workplace. We're here with mental health advocate and wellness provider Steve Tizard and learning about the role of peer support and mental health programs in the workplace. We'll be right back after the break. 
Welcome back. We're here with mental health advocate and wellness provider, Steve Tizard, learning about the role of peer support programs in mental health in the workplace. Let's check it out. Yeah, I, I always used to say about mental health injuries is that 80% of people suffer from mental health condition at some point in their life, but we put hard hats on every single person on those rigs. Right. But until recently, we never started looking at what's inside and the chance of getting hit in the head is a lot less than getting a mental health condition. But, yes. you yeah. know, so yeah. so that's that's good to know on that side of things. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about uh, your organization. You've got a consulting company called All the Best Consulting. Um, tell me a bit about the background of it and what your focus is. Yeah, well, first people say all the best consulting. That's a different. <laughs> it's a it's a term of endearment uh, for the offshore for many years. All the best means have a good rotation home. All the best means be safe. All the best means you know I'm wishing you all the best, or you know I'm wishing you uh, wellness. So w- when we sat down, we said, well, you know, all the best is that's what everybody says offshore. So we we sort of use that, but uh, it, it sort of came out of the blue. Like we we just we had so many workplaces and. So many clients that were on the outside looking in and they said, you know, how have you been able, how, how have you been able to do this? You know, how have you been able to implement the program in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean that, you know, it has, has gotten national recognition and, you know, how have you broken through that stigma? So we just started, we just started putting that together and we said, okay, let's, uh, let's start consulting. So I still work my three weeks on three weeks off, mm-hmm. some of the consulting on my time off. Yeah. And, and then we started with the micro learning. We, we put some micro learning uh, packages together. So anywhere in the world or, you know, it could be on a tanker in the, you know, in the ocean or it could be a northern um, facility. They can start using the micro learning videos to, to start implementing mental health into their OHS meetings. So, we, you know, traveling, which I'm, I'm doing again today and, t- and tomorrow um, and doing conferences and presentations. Now people can just get the information and get the program starting, um, you know, virtually, which again, through a pandemic has been, <laughs> you know, has been a, an eye opener for so many, so many of us have not had this technology of virtual uh, training. And now we're, you know, we're, we're old hands at it. Now we're, we're getting yeah. so, you know, so used to it. Right. We are, which allows us to have a conversation while you're busy because you've got some uh, big news coming up. So I'm going to brag for you for a second. I know you're not one to brag, but (laughs) you're not a stranger to any awards whatsoever. You've been named as one of only seven Canadians to be a champion for mental health by the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. And that's because of the work you've done to increase mental health awareness across the country. So tell me about the award that are you, am I correct in saying you're going to be getting it this week? Yes, tomorrow, tomorrow evening. Yeah. So this one's a little different, Mike, because, you know, you, you don't do mental health programs and advocacy for any pat on the back. That's not that's not what I've ever done this program for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one is a, is really special because it's nominated from your peers, your co-workers and, and your close friends. So so they nominated me for this award with the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. And I was just, again, I used the word overwhelmed when I was contacted to said that I was the, you know, recipient, the, the workplace champion uh, for mental health this year. It's just, you know, it's it's just something else. It's just really, really special for me because that's my peers and my friends who have who've put me forward through that. So um, I'm going to take that award tomorrow night, but I'm going to take it on behalf of everybody who has suffered from mental health issues and have come forward and asked for help. And now we're owning their illnesses and and are in recovery. Um, I'm going to take that award for everybody who's done that tomorrow night because 
that's the special part of this. It's it's not about me. It's about everybody who comes forward and 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 asks for help, which is really the first part of anything. We have to start conversations and it's okay not to be okay, but it's just not okay not to come out and ask for some help. Exactly. That's such a great point. I think it's always good to get some practical advice when you have an expert such as yourself here. And so, of course, people can contact you and your organization if they need any help within their organization. But what advice would you give uh, companies or people that are listening that maybe want to start something within their organization when it comes to setting up a program for themselves? Great. So so really start, uh, you know, you don't have to implement a program overnight. Start slow and steady. Look at some of the things that that you can do even in your organization today, like, you know, having a guest speaker come in and just speaking about mental health or introducing the words mental health in your occupational health safety meetings, which many companies still not, you know, have not done. Mm-hmm. Uh, do a little bit of research and, and look at the return on investment of mental health programs. And again, anything that you're doing is going to be an improvement. Mm-hmm. Anything that we can do to lower stigma in the workplace or anywhere for that matter, is going to help. Because every time that we lower stigma, it gives somebody an opportunity to come forward, not feel like it's a character defect or a weakness or something uh, um, that's that's negative towards uh, coming forward for, for help with mental health. If, if you had a physical health problem, most of us wouldn't hesitate to come forward and get some help. So for mm-hmm. that stigma in the workplaces, let's do some research. The more companies that start to look at it and corporations, you're going to reap the benefits. And it's just the benefits of having a workplace and a workforce who are, who are more psychologically sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll take off from there. You, you have your workplace champions in your workplace right now. Mm-hmm. You need to identify them, give them the resources and, and, and get it started. And it's just a fantastic thing to see them started. It's you know, we've seen it all over Canada and the U.S. We've we've helped, and it's just great to see when it starts to implement. And they take they take their own direction with it. Uh, mental health programs are not you know cookie cutter for every organization. What we've done in the offshore may not work somewhere else, but you know you can take parts of that and start implementing your own. That's right, because people are working in every job. Doesn't matter. People are people are people, and you know, right. for organizations. There's very few things we can do in business that are win 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 win, and mm-hmm. uh, and this is this is one of them. Uh, Steve, uh, before we leave here today, as we start to wind down, do you have any uh, last thoughts you want to leave our listeners with today? Yeah, just don't stop. <laughs> you know, we're we're going to hit roadblocks when we when we start talking about mental health and in the workplace and and the the negativity sometimes it comes with it. So for you advocates out there, for the people that are ready to stand up and start these programs, don't stop trying. Take one step at a time. You will get there. Uh, You will help people. There's no greater feeling in the world than helping people. So just don't stop. And, And there are resources and information out there. Just go get them. Perfect. And if people want to get resources and information from you, how can they get a hold of you? They can, they can uh, contact us through our website at www.allthebestconsulting.com. You'll find everything there. There's a complimentary micro learning there as well that you can kick off with your workplace just to see how it fits. And uh, we, we are readily available. You, you contact us or call us, even if it's just for a question or for clarification, we're there to help. That's excellent. Well, listen, huge congratulations. It's been amazing to see the evolution of what you've done and the impact you've made over the, all the years I've known you. So uh, I couldn't be happier for you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for the opportunity. Great show. 
and look forward to seeing you face-to-face, uh, -face, not virtually, in, in the near future. I think that we'll have to make a point of that. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, thank you to my guests for joining me today. Suicide is a tough subject to talk about, even though we learned today that it really shouldn't be. Now, there's no single cause of suicide, and although having a mental health condition can increase your risk of suicide, there are many factors and circumstances that can contribute to someone's thoughts of ending their life. But what we also learned today is that support from others is vital in reaching those in need. People in our lives are struggling every day. And if you or someone you know is struggling, then I hope that today's show provided you with some information and resources that will help. So thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.